Now, this morning, I have the privilege of being able to sit back and enjoy a cup of coffee during the service because we have a guest speaker here, and we're excited to have Anita. And fun fact, Anita is speaking here to West Heights for the third time, but this is the first time she'll actually be in person because the first two times we were online for a variety of reasons. In fact, last year, we were hoping she was going to be here in person, and then the pandemic did one of these things, and we said, oh... Can we do it online again, Anita? And she did, yep, that's good. And so Anita's here in person, and we're excited for her to be here. I, Anita is a former BIC pastor. Right now she's a full-time mom and a part-time member at, at Boundless Communications, Inc. that is leading Jesus movements around the world. She lives in London with her husband and baby and a very cuddly cat is what the bio says. But Anita, we're excited that you're here, and I'm just going to pray and invite you to come. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for today. Lord, thank you for the just who you have made us and are making us as a church community. Thank you for the opportunities that come our way to bless our neighbors um, and also, Lord, to invest in our students and our families. God, we just, we, we're just grateful that you have gifted us and put us in positions where we can, be a, we can be a part of what it is that you are doing. Lord, we're grateful for Anita this morning, and we just ask that as she speaks to us, that you would give us ears to hear, Lord, that you would calm our hearts, that we would be paying attention to what you might want to say to us through Anita this morning. Lord, would you bless her as she speaks? In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. It's lovely to be here. As Josh said, um, uh, this is my third time speaking here, but... Uh, first time in person, and actually the first time we got that invitation, I got it, it's cool, yeah. Um, the first time I had that invitation, I think it was like December 2019, which is like before like the pandemic. Like I was supposed to be here in person the first time too. So really wild and really wonderful like three-year rain check to actually being here in person, but really nice to see all of your beautiful faces. And, uh, like, it's a reminder for me, I think, of how special it is to gather together on a Sunday morning and just have the chance to be here and be in each other's space and see each other's faces and know each other's names. I love name tag Sunday for two months. I was like, oh, I didn't get a name tag, and they're like, right, it's March, so that's fine. Um, we're okay. We're going to be okay. Thank you, worship team. Wonderful job this morning. That was beautiful. Um, it's funny when you don't necessarily get to connect with the worship team before, but you can tell that they, you know, somebody spent some time in the scripture this week. And um, I appreciate that. I recognize that. And I think you guys did a wonderful job. And that is no small feat, having another voice in your ear while you're... Guys, that was amazing. Very well done. Very well done. Very well done. And you all struck my little mom heart. I had, we had a baby uh, eight months ago. You might hear him every now and then uh, in the service. You definitely heard him for worship, I think. But those diapers. Wow. Wow. I, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. I'm so impressed. I've heard lots of really good things about you all, West Heights. Heard lots of good things. I feel like I know you already. We, we know people in common. We love people in common. So it's really nice to be here. And thank you for being you. Thank you for loving your neighbors and being you uh, here in, Tron in Kitchener, Toronto. I used to be a pastor in Toronto. It's just going to pop out sometimes, I guess, right? So um, good, good to be here. Good to be here. I said, I mentioned my little mom heart. I'm going to try really hard not to be insufferable about that. But we did have a baby eight months ago. And it's like my 
heart and joy. And um, the last few you know, months, year and a half or so, ever since we found out we were pregnant, I've spent a lot of time on the phone with other moms, learning like the language and the way to interpret and the way to make sense of this whole experience of becoming a mom because babies do not come with a manual. They don't come with like the instructions. I'm the person in the marriage that reads the instructions. My husband is the one who thinks that they go in the recycling. So those people always marry each other, right? And that's what's happened in our marriage. And the baby didn't come with instructions. So my husband's doing fine. I'm doing a lot of reading and um, calling people on the phone. And I'm like, what's going on? How do I do this? Uh, Pretty much beginning from (laughs) shortly after we found out we were pregnant, I'm like, what is happening to my body? So spent a lot of time on the phone. And I'm learning this language, I'm learning how to experience things, and everything that I experience, including when I read the Bible, is being filtered through this lens, through this new experience. I was 35 years old when I had my baby, and this small, slightly changed, huge change, has just completely changed how I see the world, how I read the Bible sometimes, there's lots of things that have changed. And so, you know, I did make it through seminary, but I didn't learn Greek or Hebrew, But I will submit to you, I'll offer to you, maybe I have learned an entirely new language in the last year and a half as I uh, learned this whole motherhood thing. And I'll give you an example of that. So um, a few weeks ago, one of my good friends and one of the people who spent a lot of time on the phone with me gives me a call, it's like Tuesday afternoon or Tuesday morning, and um, she she says four words. She goes, kite sail, baby Charlotte. And I was like, And probably, like, I'm thinking most of you don't have any idea what that means. It has nothing to do with kites, right? I knew exactly what that meant. I said, what do they have? Do they have sleep sacks? And she's like, I'm checking, I'm checking. What size do you need? And I was like, do they have marigold? Do they have sage? Do they have, what about khaki? Do they have khaki? Are there footies? Do we have footies? And she's like, uh, yeah, footy. How about midnight? No, not midnight. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I don't even, like, Anita, old Anita does not know what I'm talking about right now. It is so, it's so confusing. I'm learning a whole new language. And so when we think about, you know, we're interpreting the Bible, we're going to read a story from the Bible today that's from 2,000 years ago. It's a time period that lots of our, us are not familiar with. And um, there's people in it that we're not terribly familiar with. We don't know them very well. Uh, hopefully we know Jesus well, that would be good, but even, even that context, we have to consider, maybe we don't know exactly everything that's going on. Certainly, a year and a half ago, Anita would probably have no idea what President Anita was talking about on that phone call. Kite sail, baby Charlotte. Kite is like a clothing. Sleep sacks are like these little tank top blankets that babies wear to bed, because blankets... That's a no-go for babies until they're like one years old. (laughs) Lots of things. I'm learning a lot of things. Um, And Baby Charlotte is a store in Kitchener. It's like a little boutique, very adorable store. Anyways, there you go. There's my translation of my phone call for you. And um, perhaps the miracle of communication in general is that we ever understand each other at all. There's evidence of God in our lives on a daily basis. (laughs) People who are married say, no, just kidding. Just kidding. Not really. Um, Okay, so having said that, I'm going to do my best to communicate to you. I've been studying the scripture, and we're going to spend some time in it together, and we're going to do our best to communicate about this, and um, I hope very much that God uses it. And so why don't we take this wonderful opportunity to pray together?
Dear Jesus, thank you so much for this community. Thank you for West Heights. Thank you for what they're doing in their community, the way they're loving you, uh, loving their neighbors, and loving each other. Uh, thank you that we could be here this morning, uh, that we can be here together in person, see each other's faces, be in each other's face, and um, I just pray that what you're doing here, you would uh, fan into flame, that you would bring more, that you would produce good fruit from the people, relationships, and ministry here, and that they would know you, they would know your love, and that they would show your love to the people around them. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to hang out in the Gospel of John today. It's a great place to hang out anytime, but we're going to hang out there today. We're looking at John 8. We're going to focus specifically on uh, John 8, 2, verse 11. If you brought one of these things, you can turn there with me, and we'll read it together. Otherwise, you can follow along. We're going to have some of it up there, some of the quotes and things like that up there. Um, but I will also read it to you. And the author is the book of John, as you might have been able to guess, is attributed to John, one of Jesus' disciples. That's where most scholars land, and that's where we'll land today. Um, one of a uh, scholar that I really appreciate, his name is Scott McKnight. This is what he has to say about John. I think it's a good way to start us off. He says, every passage of the Gospel of John is about Jesus. Not us, not you, not me, Jesus. So, John is about Jesus. As we're reading through here today, and we're like, well, what does John mean by that? What is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. He means Jesus. We're talking about Jesus. This is all, the whole thing is saturated in Jesus, this entire gospel. Another fun thing about John is that he refers to himself. He's kind of known as the guy, the disciple who referred to himself as the one whom Jesus loves, right? So like, when you're writing your name tags next January and February, you can write underneath, you know, Josh is the pastor, we're going to have kids pastor, the one who Jesus loves. You can all write that on your name tag, and it would be absolutely correct. But John wanted to make sure that he knows that, that we know that about him. That's how he identifies himself. He doesn't say his name. He's not like, John, who is writing this. You know, he doesn't care to tell you that he's writing this. He says, the one who Jesus loves, the one whom Jesus loves. That's how he identifies himself. Um, in your Bible, if you're looking at your Bible, you might see a subtitle here. So subtitles usually appear kind of in bold right above the verse, and they're all throughout the Bible. This one might say, the woman caught in adultery. Very scandalous, right? The woman caught in adultery. And as, um, as you might have guessed, that was not... An original title, that would have been added by translators later on, and they do that for good reasons, you know, because if I say, hey, I'm preaching on the woman caught in adultery, then you will know what passage I'm talking about, right? So there are lots of these subtitles in the Bible, they've been added later on, and they're often very helpful for references and things like that, but something that I will kind of flag for us as we're talking today is that sometimes those subtitles make us see the text through a lens that um, will direct how we're understanding this story. So we read the story and we're like, it's about a woman caught in adultery. That's it, that's all there is. You know, even as I was studying, I noticed that a lot of the commentaries that I was reading would just kind of skip over that part. There'd be like, 
volumes on John 7 and things, and then just a little, and then, you know, the woman caught adultery, and then moving on. And so let's be careful not to do that. I got to hang out in this text quite a bit, kind of saturate in it. And so um, we'll just see what comes from that. But titles can be super helpful for referencing, sometimes less so when we're wanting to spend some good time um, saturated in the text and interpreting the text for what it could mean for us and what God might be trying to say there. Another thing uh, that I'll mention is in my, in my translation, I am using the NIV here, um, New International Version translation of the Bible. It says, the earliest manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have John uh, 7.53 to uh, 8.11, so most of the section that we're working on. And then in my Bible, it's like in italics, saying this wasn't really there, we're not sure. And so part of this uh, Bible passage, uh, or sections of it, like either whole or sections, were found in different places in later manuscripts, right? So often when we are studying the Bible, we say the original or the first manuscript that we have. Um, a lot of the Bible was written from an oral tradition, and then it was written down by scribes and things like that. So the earliest examples that we have uh, don't have this section in it, and if they do, they don't have it here. But do you know where it is in your Bible? Right here. So we're going to talk about it. That gives us a good reason to talk about it, right? We, you, it's almost definitely in your Bible, and if you have spent any time in the church, if you've grown up in the church, if you spend any time in the church, then you probably know this story. It's probably familiar to you. You've seen, heard, learned about it along the way. So that is a really good reason for us to spend some time hanging out and talking about it. So we're at John 8, verse 2 to 11. If you want to turn there with me, if you have already, just before this, in John 7, um, Jesus has been at the festival of the tabernacle. So he's gone to one of his cultural events. On the way there, he had a little argument with his brothers. He said, I'm not going with you, but then he went on his own, and um, he's also had a few run-ins with the Pharisees, Pharisees uh, and the teachers of the law, so some religious people, some authoritative people when it comes to interpreting the scriptures and teachers of the law. So that's where we find Jesus here. In verse 2, it says, at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him and sat down to teach them. So all of the people at the temple are coming to sit down and learn from Jesus. So the crowd is recognizing Jesus' authority, and they're saying, we want to learn from him. What he's saying is interesting. I, have, I want to learn from what he has to say. Um, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. 
At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So I like to just take a pause there. There's an invitation from Jesus, go now and leave your life of sin. And there's just so much goodness from Jesus in this moment. He is so good. Talk about nonviolent conflict resolution, right? <laughs> wow. I just need to spend a moment, just the goodness of Jesus in that moment. And then we'll talk about the Pharisees. Okay, here we are. So these Pharisees, these friends, Jesus had a few run-ins with them. They're not friends of Jesus, not really. He loves them, but they're not friends. And they've had um, a few run-ins already. What I'll say is this is not about morality for the Pharisees. This is not about morality. They're invoking a law from Leviticus. It's Leviticus um, 20, verse 10. This is the law that they're invoking. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Some things to note. For the word adultery to be used, that means this woman is married. She's married. She's a married woman, and she has to have been actually caught in the very act of adultery. So these Pharisees, teachers of the law, have caught them in that moment. The word adultery also necessitates that there was another person present. The law requires that both of these people be brought before the law and be put to death. You'll notice that our teachers of the law, our experts, have failed to fulfill their law that they are invoking when they've brought only the woman before Jesus. You'll notice also they don't treat her as an individual precious image bearer of God. They say, what do we do with such women? What does the law ask us to do with such women? You'll notice that the law doesn't refer to such women. It refers to such people that might be caught in this situation. Just earlier at the Festival of the Tabernacle that Jesus came from, if you flip just one page earlier in your Bible, you'll see a few things that Jesus says to the Pharisees. We're looking at John 7, verse 19 and 24. And Jesus almost foreshadows this moment. I can understand why translators might have put this story right after John 7 because of this. Verse 19 Chapter 7 says, has, Moses given you, has not Moses given you the law? These are Jesus' words. Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? This is when they're confronting him, accusing him at the festival of the tabernacle. A few verses later, Jesus says to them, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. And that's what he's inviting them to do in this 
passage as well, in this scenario. These teachers of the law are bringing this woman before Jesus. They are accusing her, and they are accusing Jesus. They are hoping to catch Jesus, and they are hoping to condemn him. They are hoping to find reason to kill him. They're trying to trap him. But really what happens is that they've fallen into their own trap. You'll notice that Jesus responds equally. He receives and responds to all of the human beings in front of him, both the women and the Pharisees, teachers of the law, equally. He responds to them both about sin, and he, in, he gives them uh, both the group and the woman an invitation to live their life without sin. He addresses sin equally. But an important thing that I think we sometimes miss when we're reading this scripture is that Jesus must have seen the irony of this moment, that these teachers of the law, these religious experts, these are, they would have studied the scriptures through and through, are failing to see that this scenario that they have created puts them in a situation where they are not only being unfaithful to the law that they are invoking to have this woman and hopefully Jesus killed in this moment, they're being unfaithful to that law that they're invoking and they are being unfaithful to the God that they claim. And this isn't the first time that this has happened in the history of Israel. In these same scriptures, if you read through the Old Testament, these scriptures that these people were experts in, you'll see that repeatedly God uses the analogy of an adulterous woman when he refers to his relationship with Israel. You can see this in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and in Hosea. And God is repeatedly calling Israel back to himself and contrasting this behavior of an adulterous woman with the great faithfulness of God. He's repeatedly identifying that he is faithful, ever faithful, to Israel, to his people, to his church. And they are repeatedly unfaithful to him. And this is another example, what we're seeing here, is another example of that. And so I'm sure, I'm sure that Jesus sees the irony in that. I'm sure that maybe somebody, an expert of the law, who is maybe standing outside of, you know, their weighted experience there, that they might have seen that. The whole book of Hosea describes God's relationship to Israel in terms of the prophet Hosea's marriage to a prostitute who continues in her ways. And it talks about God. Hosea is this image for God, symbolizes God and his faithfulness to Israel as Hosea lives through his, his marriage and experiences that. I'll give you some other Bible verses um, that I've pulled as examples. In Jeremiah 3.9, it says, Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and with wood. So we're talking about Israel worshiping false gods that they've made with their own hands, made out of stone and wood, their unfaithfulness to God. In Ezekiel 23:37, it says, For they have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands. They committed adultery with their idols. They even sacrificed their children, whom they bore to me, as food for them. 
These teachers of the law fail to recognize their own history, their own scriptures in which they are referred to as the adulterous woman, and they use them to accuse Jesus and this woman. Hosea 4, verse 15 says, Though you, Israel, commit adultery, do not let Judah become guilty. So they're pointing a finger, you know, they're pointing a finger at, this is from my childhood, we used to do, I was told this when I was a kid. You're pointing a finger at someone else and you got three pointing back at you. And that's what's happening to these teachers of the law. And I imagine that's what Jesus is thinking. Sorry. Okay. Not my baby. Okay. Sorry, my baby's crying. No, it wasn't my baby. Okay, sorry. Bless all the babies. Okay, so what, so what do we do about this? For me, I just need to stop and pause and say, wow, Jesus is so good. You know? He's sending everyone away here with an invitation to a life without sin. He's so good to everyone here. He is so faithful. You know, he's faithful throughout scriptures. He's been faithful throughout time. But he's also just showing, demonstrating in this small passage of scripture how faithful he is to everyone there. Even considering the history that they have with him, with God. And look at how he, you know, draws the attention away. I think this is so important. The woman is just standing before the crowd and before her accusers, and Jesus just kind of stoops down, like, stoops down and just writes on the ground. And you can imagine in that moment that he's drawing their gaze. He's drawing their accusations. He's drawing the shame of that woman away from her. And he's pulling on, on himself, and he's just writing in the ground and causing everyone, the crowd, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, everyone, to look at what the heck is Jesus doing. But he's drawing, and he's bringing it on himself. He's drawing this shame and accusation to himself, which is just such a beautiful foreshadowing for Easter that we have coming up in a few weeks, and that if you keep on reading the book of John, you'll see that Easter is coming. Jesus is so good and so faithful to everyone here because he always has been. That's the story. He always has been. He's been faithful throughout the story of Israel. He's been faithful throughout the scriptures. And these teachers of the law should be able to recognize him for who he is, but they don't. They come to him with accusations, and still he responds to them with faithfulness. So let's, let's wonder for ourselves for a moment, who, who might we be in the story? Often when you're reading the Bible, often when I'm reading the Bible, I have a certain vantage point. You know, now I have the vantage point of a mom, but you always have this vantage point, and you're always, I think, kind of picturing yourself in the story. So where would you put yourself in this story if you were to be asked? You don't have to tell me. Just think about where, where would you... Maybe you're the crowd. Maybe you're, you know, stunned and curious and like, what is going on here? Or maybe you're the Pharisees. Maybe you are angry. Maybe you have accusations. Maybe you are thinking about how to wield the power that you have in this situation. Maybe you're the woman. Maybe you're accused, ashamed, in danger. Maybe you're a beggar watching from a distance. The beggar isn't in the story, but there's lots of beggars in the Bible, and maybe you're a beggar watching from a distance, wondering if Jesus has something for you, wondering who this Jesus guy is. Maybe you're John, recording, 
witnessing to Jesus, feeling loved by Jesus. Where might you find yourself relating to this story? Think about that for a moment. A few weeks ago, my husband and I were on our way to church. We were driving to church, and uh, we were talking about uh, this organization that we're familiar with, who has, who's in the news, who's um, some recent articles in the news. It's not in Ontario. You probably haven't heard of it, but um, it's a situation I'm sure you've heard of before, where they have uh, taken a stand against something in their culture, and they're uh, being held a task about it. So they have an organization. It's um, come to head with the culture. The organization has said, no, we're not going to do that, and it's something that our culture is very okay with. And so they're in the news, and they're being confronted about this position that they're taking. And Phil said, well, you know, what would Jesus do? Which is like such a great Christian question to ask, right? What would Jesus do? And, and you know, both of us in this moment... I think had this understanding like our cultural Christian answer would be, well, Jesus would say, and, may, and maybe this is, it can be just me. If it's just me, then I'm just preaching to myself, but maybe this is you too. But uh, we ha- I knew the answer in that moment was, well, Jesus would say, oh, come on in. You know, I love you. Come on in. And then he would send them out, go and sin no more, right? Don't we love doing that? I don't know. I, I feel like, I feel like that's, that was the thing that came to mind for me. That was my Anita answer. But then I was also kind of struck. I had this, what I feel like was a Holy Spirit moment because I was also in that answering the Anita answer, struck with emotion. And I found myself weeping and answering Phil. All of that other stuff had happened in my head. Now I answered out loud. And I said, I think Jesus would say, when did we put ourselves in the place of Jesus? Because that phrase where Jesus says, go and sin no more, that happens a few times in the Bible when Jesus does healing or when there's an interaction with Jesus. There's two specifically in John. But all of them are Jesus saying it. All of them are Jesus. And so my conviction is that when we do this ourselves, when we are imagining this story and we put ourselves in the place of Jesus in this story, in the place where judgment can be made. We are behaving and maybe aligning ourselves to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees who are very pleased to lay down the law, make accusations, and throw shame around. But we're not Jesus, Jesus is Jesus, and like that's really, really good news. Really good news. Jesus is Jesus, and we can, we can let him be Jesus, and that's what I would recommend for everyone. We should really just let Jesus be Jesus in these moments, and we are called his, to be his disciples. We are called to be like him, to follow him, to apprentice ourselves to him, to learn what he has to teach us, and to uh, give our lives over to him. You know, we are called to do all of those things. Um, But I think what is very important and what our invitation is here is to keep letting Jesus be Jesus. So maybe there are a few things that are unclear for you here. There's some things that are unclear for me still. I have a lot of questions still um, about this passage, about what we make of it. 
uh, and that's okay because I had a professor in um, seminary and she had some very good advice and she said, you know, when there's something that is unclear, interpret that through the lens of something that is clear. Read something that we don't really understand through something that is very clear, something that we do understand. And Jesus was very clear on this. In the book of Matthew, Jesus is asked, he's being challenged by the Pharisees, again in this situation, and they ask him, which is the greatest commandment in the law? They're trying to trick Jesus again, and this is what he answers. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That's found in Matthew 22, 37 to 40. And so when we ask ourselves, how are we as God's people to behave in God's world? This is our answer. We have it right there, Matthew 22. Love God, love our neighbor. You guys are loving your neighbors with diapers, and I love that. <laughs> I love that. So this is our response to the God of the story who is endlessly faithful to us. That God's great love for even us gives us an example like in this story where he responds in love to every single person there. He invites them to a life without sin, and we're reminded by our narrator, by John, that we are the ones who Jesus loves as well. So let that be our lens. Let that be our vocabulary. Let that be our experience as we go into the world, as we think about what it means to live this Christian life. And I would invite you, West Heights, can I invite you to do that? Can I invite you to let Jesus be Jesus and for you to be you? Allow Jesus to do that work in you so that you can be West Heights, the West Heights community church that this community needs and that Jesus is going to work through. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this time together. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for the ways that you have shown up to us, to each of us in our lives and shown your faithfulness. And I pray that as you lead in this church and in this community, that you would help them to see you as you are, that, they, that you would help West Heights to keep you in the place of Jesus where you are meant to be, and that they would be led by you into whatever you have next for them. I pray that you bless them. I pray that good fruit would come from their ministry and their time together. In Jesus' name, amen.